Welcome to the Talk BD Podcast, where we break down the science and strategies to live well with bipolar disorder. General Greg Martin, I have the treat of getting to call you Martino now, which is your uh, friends and family name. We got to meet in person at the uh, International Society for Bipolar Disorders conference, and I think we became friends at this at that conference. Do you think so? Absolutely. I mean, I felt like a friend before, but then when we met in person and got to hang out for four days, then it, the friendship really got solid. So I, I'm very thankful for that. So I, I feel I feel the same way. I'm really excited today to have another conversation with you about, you know, the the big picture of your story and your journey. And let me let me start with some questions. So, did you when did you know you wanted to join the army? Was that sort of you know something you grew up with as a kid? How how did you get to that to to that point? Um, so I had a lot of uh, military service in my family, my dad, uncles, and so forth. And uh, I, I always thought going in the Coast Guard or the Navy, being at sea in ships would be really cool. But when it came time to actually join, uh, the only military academy that accepted me was West Point, which is the Army. And so when I got accepted, it was just such a good package with great education, great people, sports, leadership, and then you know no cost because you get a full scholarship. I said, okay, I got into West Point, I'm going. And that was it. And I thought I would only serve my minimal time, which was five years. But I got out in the army and I just fell in love with the soldiers. They were just so great to work with. And, and the mission was exciting and important. And so all of that together just kept me in for what ended up being over 30 years. <laughs> how, so how old were you when you went to West Point when you joined? I was 18. 18. And so, and then you had your sort of five-year commitment. And then tell me, I mean, I know there's not an average day in army life, but thinking back to kind of your early 20s, you know, what, what did life look for you? What, how did it look for you at that point? So a, a typical day, you were either in garrison, you know, at the base where you would be doing um, training maintenance of equipment, supply accountability. And a lot of what I ended up doing as a young officer lieutenant was really kind of personnel or social work for my soldiers. A lot of the soldiers had uh, personal problems, like they didn't get their promotion on time. They weren't getting their pay. They had medical problems that weren't getting taken care of because of the bureaucracy and, and so on and so forth. And so I would spend an enormous amount of my time helping each of the soldiers who had problems getting their problems fixed because as a lieutenant you know you're not that high ranking but you're a lot higher than the enlisted guys and i could go into the headquarters and say hey you know i'm really trying to take care of private so and so or sergeant so and so can you help me so that would be when you're in garrison and i lived in a a german town and i would run 4 miles each way to work so I'd run four miles from the German farm into the base, work all day, and then at lunchtime, I'd lift weights, play basketball, work all the rest of the day, and then run home at night, and I would do farm chores, and I would work in a German guest house or a restaurant. So <laughs> that was a pretty typical day in garrison. But then we probably spent half our time or two-thirds of our time out what we call in the field. So we would deploy out with all of our equipment and all of our gear 
and we'd go live out in the field, in the woods, at a big training area, doing live fire exercises, maneuvers. As an, as an engineer unit, we also did lots of construction projects for the Army, the Air Force, and the German civilian population. And so when you're out in the field, you're really, really busy. You're going about seven days a week. You know, you're sleeping in, you know, tents if you're lucky. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of activity with in the training area where you've got tanks firing and, you know, guns going off and artillery going off and airplanes coming in and dropping bombs nearby. So it's, it's pretty exciting. So, uh, it, yeah, it sounds pretty varied. It sounds like, first of all, there was a lot of sort of, you know, people management and support you were doing and that you had pretty good social skills by the sound of it at that point. And also that you had plenty of energy to get through, you know, a lot of exercise, a lot of training, your army job, but then farm chores on top of that. <laughs> How was your mood during, during that period of your life overall? So very positive. You know, I've since learned in the last couple of years through research and dealing with different psychiatrists that I had a hyperthymic mood or a hyperthymic personality type, which is where it's a near continuous level of low-level mania. So again, giving me those qualities of you know energy, enthusiasm, drive, et cetera, but not going so high as to be you know real mania or to be dangerous or to be destructive. Just it really was a performance boost, a performance enhancement. And that uh, hyperthymia kept inching upwards for years and even decades until I went to a, on the bipolar spectrum. I was probably at a, uh, probably by the time I was in my early 40s, I was at kind of a sub bipolar spectrum. And then in Iraq at 47, I just went into real bipolar disorder. So I would say I was extremely happy, energetic, uh, positive. I never had a bad day. I had zero depression. I didn't need much sleep. I worked really hard, but I enjoyed the work. I loved being around the soldiers. I loved speaking German and meeting all the German people and going out and you know eating German food and, and living in the culture. So I, I mean, I just really had a wonderful time. And you were functioning very well by the sound of it until the point of Iraq. Was that where things really started to kind of go a bit awry for you? So Iraq is when my onset of bipolar disorder was. and But I was really fortunate that it was really kind of a high-performing mania that mostly enhanced and boosted my performance, which was, but it was interspersed with little dips of depression. And in the depression, I would be indecisive, withdrawn, uh, it, it, it was it was a kind of a downer, but they would only last maybe hours or a day or two. And then I started having psychosis and started having paranoid delusions about some of the people who worked for me. So the Iraq early mania was kind of a mixed bag, but it mostly helped me. And then over the next 12 years, my, my mania started getting higher, my depression lower, and that's when the problem started to occur. I started getting more and more out of control, poor judgment, erratic behavior, 
my decision-making became suspect. I became more paranoid, started having more delusions. And then that just went out of control by 2014. So about 12 years into my bipolar disorder, I was off the rails, full-blown mania, got fired, had to retire, was hospitalized. So a long buildup there, but let's go back a little bit in time because it sounds to me like you were saying that there were some hints of psychotic style thinking or flavored thinking much, much earlier than that. You mentioned feeling suspicious or paranoid about colleagues. What what was that like precisely? Well, the Iraq war, we didn't know how long we were going to be there or what end state looked like. And so our big boss, the three-star who commanded all of, uh, all of our forces, he said, listen, I don't know when this is going to end. Just we're going to stay until we stay, uh, until we leave. And, and I don't know what the end state's going to look like. And so the Pentagon and everybody was trying to def- define an end state. But after we did the big attack to Baghdad and you know really destroyed the Saddam Hussein regime and it crumbled, a lot of the people that were in that attack thought their mission, their job was over. We dislodged Saddam Hussein, time for us to go home. And I started, I told people, look, it's not over because now there's guerrilla warfare, there's terrorists, and this is going to continue until the National Command Authority says it's over and we get to go home. Meanwhile, new units were starting to flow in from the States and allied forces and so there was a lot of discontent and backbiting and you know rum grumbling and bad talk that we should be going home. We did our part. We took Saddam Hussein down. You know, our leaders aren't sticking up for us. Colonel Martin is not, you know, he's not fighting hard enough for us. It, it wouldn't matter what I said anyway, because we weren't going anywhere. But I started hearing these rumblings and I started getting reports. And a, a number of people started getting really surly and belligerent inside of my headquarters. And so there was enough reality mm-hmm. that then my paranoia and my delusion, my delusional thinking started to take over. So what might have been just a comment, I expanded into a conspiracy. You know, maybe just, you know, some grumbling that you know, we should be able to go home and we shouldn't have to stay anymore. I took as, oh, there's going to be a mutiny. My my unit's going to rebel against us. Or like in Vietnam, how there were fraggings and assassinations of, of leaders. And so my mind started playing games with me. Mm-hmm. And, and so those were the kind of psychotic, delusional thinking that started to swirl around in my brain. So, th- so there was those early signs of of psychosis and sort of like an exact an amplification of things that was happening, and you know, but an overemphasis on that. What what then happened until the point where, you know, you you had to stop work in the army? What, just tell me a little bit more about the the in between time there. Sure. Uh, well, I, we came home from Iraq after a year and went back to Germany, which was our home base. And I crashed badly into depression. I had never experienced anything like that in my life. I mean, I had you know no energy. I could barely get out of bed. I was indecisive, withdrawn, didn't 
didn't want to do anything, but the structure and the mission of the army made me get up and keep going, which was a real, you know, a plus. But when we redeployed, there's a, a initial health screening. And one of the things they're trying to do is find out how soldiers are doing mentally. Like, would they have PTSD? Are they suicidal? Do they have depression? And I told the doctors, I have depression. I've never been depressed in my life, as far as I know, but I have it now. And they said, well, what do you do to take care of your depression? And I said, well, I try to do vigorous exercise and get my blood going. I, I rehearse uh, these power verses from the Bible that say, be strong, be courageous, fear not. And, and that would help my kind of spiritual thinking. And then I would listen to really intense rock music that would lift my spirits. So I'd like blast this, you know, tremendous music. And then finally, at night after work, I started drinking more and more as an attempt to self-medicate. So I was depressed for 10 months, and I finally just pulled out of it, amazingly. Just the structure, uh, my psychiatrist thinks it was just the structure of army life, having to get up and do my job every day, that suddenly, poof, it went away, and my brain chemistry just kind of on its own went back into some normal type of functioning. I, I didn't take any medication, no therapy, but suddenly I felt good. And I, my hyperthymic personality came back again, which then turned into mania. And then the real mania started about a year after Iraq. And it was a combination. So I started getting higher and higher, more erratic thinking, uh, started getting hallucinations, started having more uh, delusions. My decision-making became more suspect. I was became more impatient, putting greater and greater demands on my workforce to, to change and transform faster. And when I would put pressure on to transform, which was what the mandate from my higher headquarters was, the, you know, the Pentagon, people began naturally to resist because, you know, nobody wants to change, especially, and I was in institutional jobs as opposed to troop combat jobs. Yeah. And so it's one thing with, when you're with a bunch of soldiers and sergeants and officers and you have a plan and you say, hey, we're going to do this plan. Then everybody's like, you know, yes, sir. And off we go. But when you're in charge of like a school or a university or you know, a big installation that does training and, and equipping, and they're not troops, they're mostly civilians, um, they're not so quick to change. And they learn how to play guerrilla warfare against you. And I knew that's what was happening, but there's it, it's hard to go against. And what that did is it raised my stress level tremendously. So I had stress from doing locking horns with you know, what was largely a bureaucratic um, civilian workforce, I had stress coming down from my four-star generals who were telling me, change, faster, transform. Oh, by the way, here's another budget cut, and that'll make you go even faster. And then we had more and more soldiers coming home from the war, you know, missing, you know, limbs, you know, dead, you know. And so I started being put on funeral duty to go to the hometown funerals of these troops who had been killed in the war. And I always went to the hospital to visit the wounded troops. 
And that, I think, took a really heavy toll on me that, you know, am I and the Army and my organization, are we doing enough to protect these troops, to give them all those, all the equipment and the technology and the training they need to stay safe, keep their limbs, keep their life? And that took a really big toll. And uh, it, it just started tearing me apart that in the, the political decisions to go into Iraq and then how once we were there, terrible decisions politically were made that made Iraq go from bad to worse. And all of that stuff just fueled my mania. And so my mania, which was already very high, then started getting into anger and rage and frustration. It was really a toxic witch's broom. But you still don't have a diagnosis at this point, right? Right. <laughs> so, how, so how did that actually happen? Because it sounds to me when you just give that rich description that things were getting pretty obvious by that point. At least I would have thought that other people were starting to flag that, you know, your mood was elevating into that state. So, you know, what was happening around you at that time in terms of getting a diagnosis of bipolar disorder? So um, it was my bipolar disorder, which was real and going on for this whole 12-year period. It was unknown, undetected, unrecognized. The people around me were untrained and uneducated on what the symptoms of bipolar disorder looked like. So even though they were with a guy who was had you know pretty serious mania, they didn't know what it was. They didn't see it. A couple people did come and talk to me and say, hey, are you okay? Are you getting enough sleep? You know, your behavior and your thinking and the things you're saying seem out of whack. And they, so a couple people did, you know, try to sort of check up on me, but it was done very mildly. The second big thing was that I was a high performer. I kept getting promoted, kept getting put in higher, bigger, more prestigious jobs. So people thought, well, he's kind of eccentric. He seems overly enthusiastic and energetic, but he's obviously doing a good job or the army wouldn't keep promoting him. But that's the thing is that uh, high performance can easily mask bipolar disorder, especially the, you know, the, the more, until you go into full-blown mania or terrible depression, it can kind of mask it. The third thing was that people liked me. You know, one of the things that would happen is I went more manic. Um, my personality grew, so I became more dynamic. Uh, <laughs> people thought I was, you know, really funny. They liked to be on my team because we were doing big, important things. And, you know, who doesn't want to be on a winning team? And so that was a big part of it. And they didn't want to hurt me. So because they liked me, they were afraid that if I had got in into the mental health system, that I would be hurt, maybe fired, forced to retire. And so those were kind of the factors that led people to not recognize or do anything about my condition until 2014 with the full-blown acute mania where I was just out of control and, you know, beyond the pale. And then they, they did start doing something about it. And how did that play out? in terms of getting a diagnosis at that point and getting some support for what you were going through? Well, it, uh, the way it played out was they did articles in key uh, newspaper and online journals saying that I was you know, crazy and doing a terrible job. 
But the four-star generals in the Pentagon, they basically read those and said, Greg, don't worry about it. I've this, These same reporters have attacked us, and they're full of baloney, so don't worry about it. Don't just forget it. So that was one big attempt that my workforce tried to, you know, get get some um, recognition of my problem. But then as it got worse and worse, they started putting in what were dozens, maybe hundreds of anonymous complaints and reports saying, detailing, you know, how bad I was. And they're just the classic DSM-5 symptoms for bipolar disorder for mania. And so once these started hitting, then my boss, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who had known me for a long time and really liked me and we had worked together, had a great relationship, he had handpicked me for the, the job. Then he said, whoa, this is really bad. Uh, we need to do some assessments on National Defense University and on Greg, and we need to do some inspection, some uh, investigations. And so they did. And what the investigations and assessments found was that I had, you know, really lost it. I'd lost the confidence and the support of the workforce. I was making, you know, uh, very suspect decisions. I lacked self-control, you know, all these classic mania symptoms. Mm -hmm. And uh, once he had the whole picture, he called me in and said, hey, resign or you're fired. And I'm ordering you to get psychiatric evaluation. And that's, I should have been diagnosed properly at that time. But the doctors didn't talk to my military chain of command and vice versa. So, that you know, even though I was intensely manic, I mean, I could still have a perfectly reasonable logical, you know, fluid conversation with the doctors. And so the doctors, one of them actually put down the chief of psychiatry at Walter Reed said, this is the most emotionally stable general I've ever met in my career. So, and I wasn't, it wasn't like I was trying to fool them or anything. I didn't know there was anything wrong because I felt great. And, and so they misdiagnosed me in three separate evaluations. And it, so I, I then saw, you know, my delusions that the workforce was out to get me. Now I had proof that my workforce was out to get me because I knew they were out to get me and get me fired. I got fired. I got forced to retire. And then the doctors three times said, there's nothing wrong with you. <sighs> well, that was proof that they were out to get me. And then I started spinning into, you know, anger, agitation, rage. And then I crashed into depression. And then once the doctors kind of saw the depression, how much I had changed from when I was manic, then they connected the dots. And it didn't take a rocket scientist where they'd like, oh, this guy has bipolar disorder and he's psychotic. And so then they got the right, the right di diagnosis and started to treat me. And did that come hand in hand with the right treatments for you in terms of medications at that point? No, it took about two more years to get the right medication. So they started treating me with a whole bunch of different medications, and all they did was make me sleepy. And it was mostly antipsychotics that just literally just put me to sleep. And it had no effect on my depression at all, zero. In fact, I kept getting more and more depressed. My psychosis kept getting worse and worse. And then it was about two years of what I call bipolar hell that finally I got inpatient a year and a half later. And 
you know, tried ECT, tried more medication therapy. And then about six months after my inpatient, they prescribed lithium and that was the silver bullet. So the, the total period from diagnosis to the correct medication that actually made a difference was two years. Mm. Goodness, that's such a big, big story and Greg, <laughs> and such a long one as well. I, I wonder, you know, so where does that leave you in terms of, you know, it sounds like there, you know, there was some times if you look back at them that, you know, times where you may have been ashamed of your, or embarrassed by things that you did. And I'm just wondering, you know, how, how have you, how have you settled in terms of being compassionate to yourself as a result of, of those experiences? And how did you, did you have to, you know, rebuild any relationships with people as part of that? Uh, yes, I, I would say, you know, I went back and, you know, did my best to rebuild, apologize for having bipolar disorder, which makes no sense because it's a physical disease that you just get. But I, but I did because, you know, it would, I would say, hey, I didn't mean to be so crazy. I didn't mean to upset you. I didn't mean to hurt you, but I had bipolar disorder. And so that's what did it. And so I'm sorry I got bipolar disorder, but it is a physical disease of the brain. So, you know, there's really nothing for me to apologize for. And, uh, but, but I am anyway. And, uh, and so I did that with, uh, work colleagues, many of whom still don't talk to me, uh, won't answer emails, phone call. Uh, cause it was for them too painful cause, and they don't understand the nature of bipolar disorder with, you know, with my own family, with, you know, uh, Maggie kids, um, my, my mother, before she passed away, she had a really hard time with it cause she didn't understand it. Even though I explained to her many, many times, I think near the end, she finally started to understand how, what it was. And, you know, when she saw me in the depressed psychotic state, I think she then acknowledged that this is physically real in the brain. So that was good. And then some of my other friends, most of my friends uh, have been really good about, you know, not holding anything against me. In fact, they're really positive and, and they applaud, you know, my efforts, my mission to share my story. And then as far as myself, it was, you know, when I finally got diagnosed in November of 2014, I was so happy. I hugged the doctor. I said, thank you, doctor, because I've known that there's something wrong with me, but I didn't know what it was. And I got these, di I got these evaluations that said I was fine and I'm not fine. So thank you. Now I want to get better. And so I guess I... I guess I'm fortunate that I never really felt much of a stigma, if any, because I realized, you know, and I learned a lot about bipolar disorder from our two sons who have it. And, you know, so I understood this is physical, like diabetes or cancer. And so I'm not going to beat myself up for it. I'm thankful that I have a diagnosis and that there's medical professionals that can help me, you know, recover. And, uh, but I really did lose hope and faith 
when it was two full years of hell with you know no recovery in sight until lithium so that was kind of that was a little bit rough mm-hmm. but uh but i think i've been pretty kind and patient you know on myself during this whole thing and am i right in understanding that your sons received a diagnosis of bipolar disorder before you did yes yeah and that <laughs> that in itself is is an interesting piece as well yeah so so they were uh they were teenagers and i was in my 40s and uh you know here i was i had either just below bipolar or i was actually into a bipolar level and uh and so i'm dealing with two sons who have bipolar disorder are diagnosed with bipolar disorder and are trying to you know put together their shattered life and i it myself have bipolar disorder, but don't know it. So, so interesting. Let's let's put you in a time machine, Greg. Let's put you back in a time machine, and we're going to give you the opportunity to talk to one of those medical doctors in the army. Let's go back to the one way. Remember, you said you were going to your medical doctor and saying, "I'm depressed, and this is what I'm doing. I'm doing exercise. I'm you know doing my scripture. I'm I'm doing all of this self management stuff." Then you were drinking, doing everything that you could do that was in your control to manage <laughs> your depression. And right. it sounded to me like not, not none of the psychiatrists was like, "Well, we could try a medication here." <laughs> Even although that you were putting it on the table very clearly for them, you, we'll stick you in that time machine and we'll put you back in that office with that medical doctor. What message would you want to give give them at this point? I would tell them that, look, I just went through a very intense, stressful, euphoric experience. I felt high as a kite in Iraq. In 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 before Iraq, I've, I was incredibly euphoric, you know, even manic, and you know, I I I came out of that and I've crashed. It you know, and and what they would say is, oh, that's just normal because you just came home from a war. But is it normal to have been so high, which was we now know mania, and then to crash so low when I've you know never been depressed before is, is isn't there more to it you know and you know wh- why wouldn't you consider the possibility of bipolar disorder mm-hmm. and and so i think that's what i would say to them um and then when the when the depression just didn't go away instead of kind of waving it off i i would have a conversation and say hey this is really serious i've never been like this in my whole life and you know, just months ago, I was high as a kite. I thought I was Superman. I thought I could fly. I didn't need any sleep. Um, I, I could make rapid decisions. I was pretty much fearless in combat under fire. And I, I think I would have, if, if I knew then what I know now, I would have had a much sharper, more pointed conversation about the possibility that I that I had bipolar disorder. And to and to put the shoe on the other foot, it can, it sounds like they could have asked you uh, deeper questions or asked you questions about what are you like when you're your usual self. You know, is it regular for you to feel 
depression? Is there the chance that this isn't explained just by your environment and you know the, your work situation and the stresses and being deployed at that point? And some more pointed questions about you as an individual and your usual mood states and how much these mood states were differing for, for, for you from your regular self might have helped with that diagnostic process at that point. Absolutely. Because until that 10-month depression after Iraq, I had been almost my whole life since teenagers completely up, positive, optimistic, driven energy, you know, like the nicknames I had were like the Energizer Bunny or Martino the Madman, you know, where people thought that I was kind of, kind of just always up because I was, I was always up. And, uh, and so if if he had had that, he or she had had that conversation, I think it could have pointed drastically to how out of character this lengthy depression was. Yeah. And but if that's not, go on, sorry. One of, the, one of the things though, and it happened when I went, uh, when I was getting looked at in Washington, D.C., uh, they don't expect to see it in a senior officer. So, you know, but that depression and that initial mania in Iraq and then afterwards, I was a colonel. That's very high. It's below general, but it's colonel's pretty high rank. And they're not used to seeing colonels and generals with bipolar disorder. They're used to seeing 18 to 25-year-old private sergeants, mm -hmm. young officers, and it just kind of is out of their norm and they don't want to hurt you. They're, they're afraid that if they diagnose you with a mental illness, you'll get hurt, you'll get labeled, stigmatized, and it could cost you your career. Mm -hmm. So a form of protection, but not one that's very, very helpful at that point, and a form of positive bias to you know, more senior, senior workforce members you know, being somehow insulated from mental health challenges in a way. Okay. When right. the opposite is probably true, there's even more layering of stress and pressure in those, yes. uh, in those types of jobs, potentially. If your time machine was taking you back to you at your darkest time, Greg, when things were most rough in terms of risk of self-harm or suicide or psychotic uh, thinking behaviors, what would you tell yourself at that darkest time? I would tell myself what my good friend and battle buddy, Bill Barco, told me, that you will pull out of this. You can pull out of it. Have hope. Even though everything seems bleak and dark and hopeless right now, hang in there. Keep moving forward. Don't give up. You know, don't, ki don't kill yourself. Even though you want to die, don't, don't do it. And uh, you will eventually get better. And he said, my son has bipolar disorder and he pulled out of it and he's doing well now. And I've known other people as well. So just have hope, keep going. Mm. Thank you. And finally, let's take your time machine over to Maggie, your beloved wife. Is there anything that you would have liked her to know at the beginning of this journey or when things got most hard and most difficult? I think that, you know, in, in the book, she writes a piece and she describes her situation as being like a frog in a pot of water that the uh, flame is turned on 
And slowly the pot of water gets warmer and then hot and then very hot. And then it's boiling. And she didn't notice that it was getting hotter until it was boiling. Because when she met me, I had hyperthymia, you know, just this mild mania. And I think that was one of the things she liked about me because I was fun, happy, energetic. And it was just great. And, uh, and so my hyperthymia just inched up for years. And then it became, you know, low-level mania. Then it became real mania. Then it became full-blown mania. I, I think I would say if you start noticing strange, out-of-character behavior, you know, talk, talk to me, talk to others, encourage me to go in and get a, a psyche vow. But she would say, I, I tried that, but you didn't listen. I tried that, and then you thought I was the enemy against you. And so you, you didn't believe me when I, when I saw things. And then the other thing she would say is, I didn't really notice it until the very end. So uh, she noticed that I had really lost it about the time lots of other people did and started sending the anonymous complaints to my, the chairman. That was about the time she did. And by that time, it was, I mean, it was game over. It was just a matter of time before I was going to get fired. Mm -hmm. That's really, really interesting. Thank you. Okay, so we started out this conversation talking about, you know, some years ago, what was your life like as a new army recruit in an average day of Greg? Uh, tell me, what's an average day in Greg's life like at this point in your life? No, my life is terrific. I generally get up pretty early, like six o'clock, and I go to the gym and do group fitness classes, do some aerobics, lift weights. And then three days a week, I'm also in a group dancing class with, with some of my friends. And that's a lot of fun, just fun music, fun dancing, you know, energetic, happy people. Then I come home, I eat lunch, and then I go right into my bipolar work. So I'm writing, speaking, coordinating with people, lining up talks and visits and I've gotten a bunch of invitations to since uh, just since uh, Chicago to give talks at various places, to do grand rounds at different med schools and hospitals. I talk to people on the phone. I do Zooms. So that consumes my whole afternoon into the early evening, like say six o'clock. I also try to take a fitness nap for at least 30 minutes every day because I think that's really healthy for me to lie down, close my eyes, try to, you know, hopefully fall asleep. And uh, that's really good. And then about six o'clock, I wrap up my bipolar work and then try to do some yoga and then on my own. And then I watch, I try to watch the news. I, I like the PBS news hour. I think they're good. It's pretty solid uh, material, not extreme one way or the other. And then uh, in the evening, I either watch a movie or one of those cool series on TV that are fun to watch and they're interesting. And I try to have like a, a date night with Maggie. So, cause she really likes these, you know, these series and movies. And those are things that during my time in the army, I just didn't have time to do. I was too busy. And then I try to, I try to get to bed by, uh, 
I make the coffee for the next morning and then I try to get, get to bed by 10. Sounds like a good life, Greg. It is. It's mm -hmm. great. And I also do some reading. Uh, I'm reading a, a good book right now. It's, it's on uh, suicide prevention. So most of my work, my thinking and reading and studying and movies. And then last night I watched a movie on bipolar disorder. So I'm really trying to, you know, learn more and go deeper on mental health topics. <laughs> and of course, you have your own book coming out. Is it September? It comes out in print? Yes. They're saying the 15th of September will actually come out. And so then I'll get, I'm going to get real busy with, you know, book launch, talks, events, visits, et cetera. And uh, that'll be a lot of fun. We'll provide uh, the website links uh, for that in the show notes at the end of this uh, uh, this recording. I'm so grateful to you for spending so much time with me to give me such deep insights into your very big journey with bipolar disorder. Um, thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom and expertise this morning with us, Greg. Erin, it's absolutely a pleasure and an honor, and I am just so in awe of you and Crest BD the team and the research center that you've built. So I, I just hope I, I don't have to wait another year for the ISPD conference to see you in person so I can give you a hug. <laughs> I'll look forward to that, Martino. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Jared. Goodbye. Bye.